You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Shalom. This is, on principle, Challenges Jewish Education, a very special uh, episode. I'm joined here by, again, I have the honor, really, to be joined by uh, Rabbi Dr. I guess Michael Broyd uh, out of Emory University, who um, uh, I've been able, through this uh, medium, to be able to meet a number of times, and he's graced us with uh, his wonderful insights on a wide range of, of subjects. Uh, I think that we're still, Rabbi Broyd, um, within the Shloshim, of course, just right after, just a week after the Shiva of uh, Rav Moshe Dov Etenor, Sechot And we are sort of, uh, as is now, first of all, since this is, I know we're going to jump out of this, but since we do talk about him as an educator, can you talk about him first a little bit as what his role was as an educator? And then let's move on to, to, to how, as from an educator, he went to be something way beyond that. I want to start with an observation my father told me, Zecher Tzadik Avracha. My father went to MTA in the early 1950s. And my father told me that in MTA in the early 1950s, there was no doubt at all that Rabbi Moshe David Temler was the foremost cool Rebbe in the school. He was the teacher that all the students wanted to be in. And he was the person who represented a vision of the future for people committed to Torah Umada. My father went on to learn in Chaim Berlin for a decade and get smicha and get a PhD in physical chemistry. And my father will tell you that it was Rabbi Tendler who laid out that grand vision of the compatibility of Torah Umada in that era. This was prior to Ravar and Lichtenstein and the rise of Torah Mada as a Western philosophy, Rabbi Tendler articulated the combination of Torah and science, which my father found very appealing. And there's no doubt that Rabbi Tendler was the best educator in the building. He was the coolest Rebbe. His English was most fluent. Um, he had the best sense of humor. And he was the person whose sheer people crowded to get into. Um, I'm not going to speak about it here, but Rabbi Tendler had an awe-inspiring, wonderful wit and a fantastic sense of humor. And because he was a native English speaker, my father said he could actually joke in English, which was a skill unheard of among the Rebbeim, who mostly told, when they told jokes, told jokes in Yiddish, which the Talmudim, my father, an American-born boy, didn't get. They weren't. The jokes that were funny in Yiddish weren't funny. Um, and Rabbi Tendler was capable of being a witty, thoughtful Rebbe. Second of all, Rabbi Tendler was a wonderful, funny, entertaining biology professor. I took him for freshman bio. I was a bio major in college. And he was a fantastic educator and a thoughtful teacher who gave a great deal of insight and thought as to um, what to teach and how to teach it and how to prepare lectures and what was valuable and what was not valuable for the students. That's an important thing. Um, don't miss the fact that some people are eminent Torah scholars, but bad mechanchen. 
Rabbi Tengler was a wonderful machane who clearly prepared every lecture. Clearly prepared every lecture. It was a privilege to take a college lecture course with him um, because every lecture was sparklingly entertaining and interesting. He was a well-done educator. I'll come to a weakness of his educationally at the end. Um, like everybody, nobody's perfect, and he wasn't either. Thirdly, as a young man... Why do you, I'm sorry for interrupting, but that's sort of uh, uh, ingrained in me. So you have to be mochel. Um, uh, why do you think, you know, I, I know it's been noted that he was the, one of the first English-speaking, native English-speaking uh, teachers. My friend Shmuel Landisman wrote a, a very nice uh, obituary uh, memory of him in, in, in the Jewish press, noting that. Um, why, why do you think he got that at such a young age? I mean, it, 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 he was born based on the obituaries that I was reading in 1926. So in, in the early 50s, he was just a 20-something-year-old guy. Um, it's interesting that he, he was able to get a position. It had to do, was there, was there any reason why you think he was able to step into getting a pretty prestigious position when others were just, you know as well as I do, many young men of his age had to, had to scamper everywhere. Uh, even someone as great as Ravnota Greenblatt at that age had to find a, a job as a chazan in Memphis, Tennessee. And he was able to get a job, a decent paying job, working for uh, MTA. So first of all, Rabbi Tendler was very well secularly educated. Don't miss the fact that looking for people who are, who had smicha and a PhD in biology in 1955, you didn't have a big list. Um, Rabbi Tendler was one of the few well-done educated people. I and mean, when you look for them with, in the sciences, there were even fewer. Now there are a dime a dozen almost. But, um, you know, you, you not only could put together a Besden of people with smicha and an MD, you could put together a Sanhedrin of 71. But in 1950, most of the people who drifted to the sciences either became lax in their shmir mitzvahs or... Or worse, so, so Rabbi Tendler was not lax and was meticulous and careful. I just want to say that. that it wasn't so common. It's important not to be ahistorical. Now you can put together um, dozens, hundreds of people with PhDs in heavy sciences and smicha. But I think in 1950, you couldn't. He was a catch for MTA. And not the other way around. So, so in other words, probably to put it straight on the table, they could use him in the secular studies in ways some other Rebbe wouldn't, they wouldn't be able to use, right? They were able to use him, in, 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 as you say, in the high sciences, as opposed to maybe some smart guy who could teach a math class to ninth graders. He was someone that they could stick into the college. And eventually, of course, he became... I think the head of the biology department for a while, right? He was yes for many, many, many years. He was the chairman of the biology department, and he he was a rarity in 1950. Write down on a piece of paper, eminent Torah scholars with a PhD in a heavy science in 1955. Small number, and most of them stopped being religious. There were, of course, a group, but they, but but they they left. Or they left rigorous Torah learning, even if they remained um, profoundly observant. 
I, I remember you mentioned to me in a previous conversation, Rabbi, uh, about, and, and I wasn't, I guess I didn't find this in my research, that there was a Time Magazine article that was written around 1960-something, right? And that 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 uh, heralded Rabbi Tendler as as, as, as one of the, the great... Uh, an up-and-coming biologist. Not an up-and-coming Torah scholar. Time Magazine had no interest in... Rabbi Moshe Feinstein's son-in-law, or Rabbi Moshe Feinstein. Um, the, but uh, uh, his work in cancer research and his invention of a drug which didn't turn out to have the potential he thought called refuacin was quite an issue. Was It made him uh, an important person. Third, educationally, Rabbi Tengler was open. You could go talk to him and think things through. I spoke to him in, when I was younger and my orbit was less well established about a variety of Shilas and Rabbi Tengler was always open to a phone call or a conversation. Unlike some important Rebbeim in Yeshiva, he was never too busy. He was never too busy. Um, I liked Rebbeim who were never too busy. If you repeatedly said to me, I don't have time for you, I drifted someplace else. Rabbi Temler had time, and he was happy to talk to you um, about uh, uh, a Shiloh. Um, and he also, by the way, knew um, when he was too strict for Amcha. I, I uh, wrote on Cross Currents that once I asked Rabbi Temler a Shiloh, and he said, this is out of my area of expertise, and you should call, and he gave me somebody else. And... Um, I didn't know exactly how to process this. <laughs> but it turns out that Rabbi Temler had an enormous chumrah here that he had written out and that he really believed was true, but he didn't want to share because it didn't help me in the problem I had to deal with. So he referred me to somebody else. He was enough of an expert to know when he wouldn't be helpful. I, I guess because it was Yeshiva University or MTA, we know that I think what you're saying makes a lot of sense, that bringing him in and giving him that perch of influence. Um, in some other uh, areas, other yeshivas, you might have said, well, the reason why he got the job was because he was an aidim by the Posek Ador, Rabbi Moshe Feinstein. Um, I, but it turns out, and I think we need to talk about this, and I know that you have a lot of ideas uh, in this area, that his relationship that started in that uh, library where he ends up meeting uh, Rebetz and Schiffer, Feinstein Tendler, um, ends up really um, having a tr- an incredible impact uh, on, on himself and on the, on the world in general. Um, and I, I know you have some ideas about that. So uh, I do. I want to say something out loud that's very important. <laughs> in the era of the Rishonim, the truth of science was debated, with the Rambam thinking science is true and many others disagreeing with him. And this dispute continued for many, many, many years. And you found Gedolim, giants, who denied the truth of Torah. We all know that there was a famous dispute, for example, between Rabbi Herzog and Rabbi Uziel, both chief rabbis in Israel, about the relationship between Torah and science with Rabbi Uziel flatly denying the truth of science. 
Science was, in Rabbi Uziel's view, sort of like Western philosophy. It was sometimes true and sometimes false. This open dispute about the value of science, I think, is settled by Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, whose view dominates now so much so that the other view is deemed unacceptable. And Rabbi Feinstein settles this view so definitively because of his close connection to Rabbi Temler. Rabbi Temler insisted that science was an undebatable truth and you could never predicate halacha on um, the falseness of science. And that while you could argue with the falseness of Western philosophy or the validity of English literature, you could not argue with the science. You had to incorporate the centrality of the scientific truth into the halacha. And Rabbi Temler was insistent that this was true. And Rav Moshe adopts that insistence throughout his chuvot. And Rabbi Shlomo Zalman Orbach subsequently adopts it, and so does the Tzitz Eliezer. And this becomes the dominant view in our halachic universe. Um, and I believe that Rabbi Tenor played an instrumental role in settling an ancient dispute. It was until Rabbi Tenler's era possible to be a gadol b'torah and deny the truth of science. And you found gedolim both in America and in Israel and in Europe who comfortably denied the scientific truth. But by 19, by the year 2020, I think it's over. And I think that Rabbi Tendler played an instrumental role in sharing both with his father-in-law <coughs> and with Gedolim all around the basic idea. The basic idea was that science was a truth on par with Torah. It was a truth on par with Torah and that it could not be denied and Torah had to incorporate the basic truth of science into its psukim. Let me give you an example at its most radical. There's a dispute among the Rishonim as to whether a person with one testicle is considered a pitzuladaka. And the consensus of the Rishonim is that such a person is a pitzuladaka and they're prohibited to marry, and if they do marry, their child is a mamzer. By 1950, Rav Moshe writes a wonderful tshuva saying, we know this is conclusively, scientifically false. And we lay out, Rav Moshe lays out how the halacha can change in this matter, either nishtane hatavayim or other explanations, but Rav Moshe's definitive by 1950 that we follow the science against the codified view in the Shulchan Aruch through whatever technique and tool we need to adopt. And I don't know if you've seen the most recent volume of Chalkas Binyamin by Rabbi Binyamin Kohn, Rabbi Feivel Kohn's son, who's writing a multi-volume commentary on 
Yoridea Evan Ezer and Choshen Mishpat. It's quite a remarkable work. The most recent volume was on Hilchel's Brewer Vote. And he says without question or doubt that, of course, Rav Moshe is right. And it's my symbol that we understand that, that we follow this view. And then he explains a variety of ways as to how we reach this view. But the parity of Torah and science is one of Rabbi Tendler's great contributions to Rav Moshe Feinstein. And from Rav Moshe Feinstein to everybody. Um, and it's not a secret. Rav Moshe frequently says, I spoke to Rabbi Tendler. And these are the facts. Yeah. Um, and then Rav Moshe never doubts the science. Again, I don't have the, the date on, on, you know, on, and we can look this up later. And of course, we don't prepare probably enough as much as we should. But Rav Tendler was only married, I think, to uh, his Rebbitzin. I guess that was in what forty eight or forty nine. I don't know when the tshuva that you are discussing was written. I think you're presuming a lot to say that even that tshuva in nineteen fifty, he's already has this young yungaman whispering in his ear uh, about the importance of getting the science right and the Torah right. I don't deny, uh, you know, Rabbi Broid. Throughout the years, Rabbi Tenner was his go to man, especially I think in probably one of the most famous. Uh, Psokin that uh, that Rav Tenwar was responsible for Mafarsim, the famous uh, Philadelphia Siamese twin um, uh, case where you know Rav, Rav Moshe ruled about uh, splitting the conjoined twins. Rabbi Tenwar was not only his baleitza. Rabbi Tenwar was the one who actually did the uh, labor of traveling to the hospital and bringing back the information and being involved. And that's just one story of where Rabbi Tenwar was so crucial. But but I would I would argue that Rav Moshe, despite the fact coming from Luban and coming from way beyond the Iron Curtain, Rav Moshe I think had it in his own mind this understanding, and especially when in the 1950s and early 60s he was thrust as the posek for the modern era uh, here in the United States, not getting the type of shy was uh, the Rabbanim in the 19th century got. I think I think inherently he understood it. He definitely having Rav Moshe Tendler as his son-in-law was crucial, but I'm not sure if I would agree that that is what tipped the scales to turn Rav Moshe into the the the, the champion of science being on par. Um, I, again, so it's a I think Rav Moshe is definitely the champion to the extent we are guessing. What what tell me that you will speculate that Rav Moshe could have accomplished it without Rabbi Tendler? I would say, could be. I have no idea. That's in the realm of alternative history or science fiction. I will say that Rabbi Tendler and, uh, worked hand in glove with his father-in-law to accomplish a goal. It's possible his father-in-law would have achieved without his son-in-law, but his son-in-law was... We have, other than the places where he mentions his son-in-law, we don't really have the evidentiary proof that Rav Moshe was working on these chuvas, getting that input all the time. Now you could say, where else was he getting it from? But, but I'm not talking about so much the scientific information. I'm talking more about the attitude that when I get this information, I am going to make sure it's paramount and I'm not going to sideline it. And that's what you are implying here. And again, look, we're friends. Yes. 
we're friends. I, I am I am of the view that Rabbi Tenler played a crucial and important role in sharpening Rabbi Feinstein's deep commitment to the truth of science throughout his two votes. Of course, I have no proof to the what if. What if um, Rabbi Tenler had not been there, would the same result have been reached? I have no idea. Would Tom Brady have been a great quarterback if Gronk hadn't been a wide receiver? What do I know? <laughs> I don't know. But it, but I can say as follows. Okay, you know, again, I'm not going to argue football with you, but you could. You threw it out. You know, let's see what he was before this receiver. What was he on a team that the receivers aren't as uh, as, as gifted as Randy Moss and others? So uh, we can we can see that because we can see what those receivers did when they weren't with Brady. I think uh, in, the, in the so I think it is possible in a way. Look, no one denies what you're saying that that without Rabbi Tenler, Rav Moshe in many ways, and he was such, he was so family oriented. I mean, his chuvas, I, I, I read an article that someone wrote about the, uh, the endearing comments that he writes to his family. Someone decided to write an article collecting Rav Moshe's endearing comments and how much he loved every member of his family. And there's no question about it that Rav Moshe loved his daughter and embraced his son-in-law. And it wasn't someone he just tolerated. It was someone that he was with in, in, in a real way. The question though is though, is, you know, uh, we, are, we, are, we are ascribing to Rabbi Tendler almost the, 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 the victory of what you said was a thousand year old, almost a thousand year old battle. Uh, and, 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 and Rabbi Tendler is through his connection is the champion of that. So that is really- I, I, I understand, let me put it in a slightly different way then. Rabbi Tenler gave Rav Moshe access to an enormous collection of scientific literature through Rabbi Tenler and the experts he interacted with that was unavailable to a variety of gedolim in the United States. And that um, this was one of the unique things that Rav Moshe had that until Rabbi Shlomo Zalman Orbach develops them in Israel is essentially unavailable in the United States. Um, and Rabbi Tendler played an important role in this um, simply by providing Rav Moshe with access and information and conversation to help explain um, the science and make sure that Rav Moshe understood the science well and integrated it properly into the true vote. Um, and that that's an important role that a son-in-law expert um, can do, even though I agree with you, Rav Moshe was inclined in this direction anyway. But I wanna contrast, for example, the Chazanish was inclined in this direction also. But due to his sheltered environment and his lack of access to experts, he never achieved the goal because the Chazanish um, never was privileged to gain access to <coughs> the science that is clear the Chazanish thought was true, but couldn't actually wrap his hands around. Meaning, 
to have an idea that science is true is an idea to have access to the variety of experts and expert and expertise that Rabbi Tendler and his scientific community put on the table. It's so important. It's interesting you mentioned the Chazonish, and of course I grew up um, with Talmidim of Rav Moshe. They're sort of the people who raised me along with my parents. Um, and I heard from Rabbi Froyim uh, Greenblatt, who of course you knew as well, uh, who uh, you know, sort of made a career out of being a Talmud of, of Rav Moshe Feinstein. I heard stories that he would say from the Chazonish uh, about how the Chazonish would be able to uh, draw uh, to the doctors uh, the basis, sketch out where their surgery should take place. And he would draw a picture of the of if there was a, a brain procedure and he would tell them where they should cut or something like that. I, I don't believe these things for a minute. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, these are tales. Um, the Chazonish was not a scientific expert, and there's nothing in his writings that shows a fluency in science in the same way that there is in, in Rav Moshe's writings. Rav Moshe's writings show that somebody with a PhD in the sciences is looking over and tinkering with the formulations and making sure they get things precisely correct. Um, the stories about the Chazanish are stories. A person who reads the Chazanish sees that the man believes in science, but he lacks access or expertise. Of course, so Moshe has access and expertise, and this is part of the process of making him a goggle. Of course, the Chazanish, you know, although they've published in the last number of years, I'm, I'm trying to collect them, chuvos from the Chazanish, you know, his forum are not chuvos. He was not, we don't have published chuvos about uh, questions of, 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 uh, of, of operations and, uh, and other things that, that he was asked about. He was writing Biurim and Sugyas, so you wouldn't necessarily but, see any of that there anyway, right? But I'll give you an example. When the Chazanish writes about Truma and Orla issues, it's clear that he's, he needs a botanist sometimes, and he doesn't have one. Mm-hmm. He, he doesn't have one. He knows he needs one, but he doesn't have one. Okay, See his conversation about eggplants, for example, uh, a plant that grows not every year, but not every other year either. The Chazanish is struggling to get a hold of the expertise. Rav Moshe never struggled to get a hold of the expertise so he could get the facts crisply right and apply them to the halacha as he understood them. This is something that Rabbi Tendler facilitated. To the extent you're asking if Rabbi Tendler weren't there, would somebody else have facilitated it? Too speculative for me. Let me ask you, let's talk about let's talk about Rabbi Tendler now disassociated from Rav Moshe or still using Rav Moshe, but not necessarily influencing him directly. And you know what I'm talking about, of course. I'm talking about his use of his understanding of Rav Moshe's uh, conversations and 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 Psokim, uh, in the brain death uh, controversy. Um, yes, you know that's. So I, I want to highlight, as I I hinted at before a weakness I sensed in Rabbi Tendler. And I say it with love and it reflects his Yeras Shemayim, but I don't think he was correct. When I went to Rabbi Tendler and said to him that I was leaving the sciences and going to law school, Rabbi Tendler expressed to me um, uh, unflattering amazement. He thought there was nothing of value in secular law and that secular law 
um, was a handmaiden to halacha and science was a peer of halacha. Rabbi Tendler, I think, made a crucial mistake in the brain death conversation. And um, this is criticized, Rabbi Chaim David Zwiebel sharply criticized him in an article in the 80s in the Jewish Observer. And I think Rabbi Zwiebel's criticism is correct. Rabbi Zwiebel says as follows, American law, Rabbi Zwiebel, by the way, is a great lawyer on top of all his other skills. I believe he was the valedictorian of the first graduating class of Cordoza, an unadvertised Yeshiva University alumni. Um, um, Rabbi Zwiebel points out that the American tradition is of religious accommodation. And even if Rabbi Tendler passionately thinks that his understanding of brain death is correct, he should not push New York State to not respect other views of brain death. And that secular law has something to teach us about how to accommodate religious beliefs. The law of the United States should not be in the business of determining what is the true halacha. It should be in the business of accommodating sincere religious beliefs in a variety of areas. Rabbi Tendler was so sure that his view of brain death was correct that he even pushed New York State not to accommodate alternative views. And I think that was mistaken. And it reflected the fact that while Rabbi Tendler had fully drunk from Torah, and had fully drunk from science, he hadn't yet drunk the, from the, cu the cup of American law and religion. And had he invested in a crisp understanding of the values and virtues of American law, he might have understood that accommodating a diverse collection of religious beliefs is itself, by the way, a powerful contribution American law makes even to Torah. Rabbi Tendler was somewhat intolerant of wrong views, and American law might have taught him a healthy value of tolerance. Uh, you, um, what you're saying is, is great. I mean, I love what you just said. I think after I left Rabbi Tendler's orbit in my early 30s, I twice had important pastoral matters to talk to. And one of my friends said, I should step out of my rebellion and go talk to Rabbi Tendler about these two pastoral matters. And before I end, since I said something critical before, I don't want to end on criticism. I want to note as follows. When I needed pastoral help in my own family life, um, I went to Rabbi Tendler to talk to him twice on two different matters. And even though I had left Rabbi Tendler's orbit and I had gone to law school and I was no longer an active scientist and I no longer discussed with him the regular Shilas in my life. Rabbi Tendler not only spoke to me, he said to me, please come meet with me and we should sit and talk. These are two important matters to um, discuss on the phone. And Rabbi Tendler gave me exceptionally wise, um, deeply effective, incredibly accomplished pastoral advice. And it's worth understanding that even though I said something a little bit critical of Rabbi Tendler, um, um, all of us have failings. Rabbi Tendler had fantastic strengths and he was a wonderful good man 
who helped countless people, and he had a profound influence on the ebb and flow of halacha in the 20th century. I don't want anybody to think that the criticisms that I... That his intolerance uh, towards those who disagreed with him, uh, Rabbi Bleich and others, uh, in, in many ways was fueled by his sense that people are dying and not getting the... Um, the organs that they need in order to live. Um, there are people who could live, people whose chances of life were strong. And because of that, I think he, he, he felt that he needed to uh, be extremely strong-willed and unbending, uh, even to the point where you know, perhaps others would have knuckled under to uh, the, the halachic uh, backlash that was occurring from Eretz Yisrael and other places, but he felt that this was something that, um, despite that, as Rabbi Broid points out, that there's a certain sense of intolerance towards others' religious beliefs, you know, he, I think what he felt was paramount was the possible saving of lives of others of Losam and Odam Reyecha. And as Rabbi Broid said, he, Zichrei Boruch, and uh, we shall hopefully be Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.